Welcome to the Swift Healthcare video podcast, exploring the intersection of healthcare and leadership hosted by Dr. Patrick Swift. SwiftHealthcare.com is your resource for healthcare professionals to find coaching and consulting to engage, restore, and transform yourself and your organization. And now here's your host, Dr. Patrick Swift. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Swift Healthcare Video Podcast. I am delighted that you're here. Welcome to our listeners in Latin America and Eastern Europe and, and the United States and, and all over the planet because I have an amazing guest. I'm so excited about Dr. Robert Pearl. Dr. Pearl, welcome to the show. Thank you, Patrick. It's an honor and a privilege to be here. Well, I'm delighted you're here. And, folks, I want you to, to take a seat, uh, get comfortable. You're about to experience a master class, and um, I could not ask for a, a, a better guest for a show that's looking at the intersection of healthcare and leadership. Pop the hood, look at the engine of healthcare, talk about it from a from a, a heart and head and understanding perspective, and someone who can see the big picture. Uh, Dr. Robert Pearl, I have uh, this bio, I've got to read you a portion of this bio. Dr. Robert Pearl is the, listen to all this, the former CEO of the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest medical group, former president of the Mid-Atlantic Permanente Medical Group. In these roles, he led 10,000 physicians, 38,000 staff, healthcare professionals, responsible nationally recognized medical care and 5 million Kaiser Permanente members. That's one. Two, one of the nation's modern healthcare's 50 most influential physician leaders. Uh, I know Robert's going to try to stop me, but hang on there. I, I want to share this with listeners. He's the author of Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong. Can you not resonate with that? Uh, his next book coming out, which I'm so excited about, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. Ah. Such a great title. He hosts multiple podcasts, Fixing Healthcare, Coronavirus, The Truth. We got to hear the truth about coronavirus. God. Uh, publishes a newsletter with over 12,000 subscribers. If you're not subscribed, please subscribe. Uh, monthly musings on health, American healthcare. He's a regular contributor to Forbes. Um, the, the man is a dynamo um, leading with heart. And uh, let's start with the book uncaring how the culture of medicine is killing doctors and patients at the top of the show. We're going to end on this, but at the top of the show, uh, Robert, please just share with folks um, the book and how folks can get it and who it's helping. This is, listen to this, who's helping. Thank you so much, Patrick. When I wrote the book, Mistreated, I was talking about the systemic problems, how healthcare is paid for, how healthcare is organized how it's technologically or not technologically supported. And as I travel around the country and I talk to doctors and patients, it was clear to me there was something else missing. And I researched, trying to figure out what it was, and I wrote the book about what I believe it to be, which is the physician culture. And although I call it the physician culture, it's really the culture of all people who provide care. I just know the physician side, having been the head of the medical group, far better that I know all the other pieces, sure. but it equally applies. And for those of your viewers who do pre-order the book, they can go to my website, robertperlmd.com, where they can find access to a lot of providers. All of the profits go to Doctors Without Borders, a 501c3 charity providing healthcare around the globe, as did the profits from this treated. And anyone who pre-orders the book will get 
some freebies, including a signed book plate, including a discussion guide, a bibliography of other books on the same topic, and a chance to pre-read the introductory chapter. And it will be delivered to your home on May 18th, the official pub date. Love it. I love it. I love it. And again, folks, the, the proceeds of this book are going for Doctors Without Borders, Medicine Sun Frontier. Uh, it, it, this is for good. Um, and it encapsulates some wisdom and love and compassion and courage and joy that Dr. Pearl is compelled in that, composed in that book. So this, ep number one, thank you. And two, this episode, we're going to do this show in two segments. The book is titled Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine is Killing Doctors and Patients. And being providers, we were talking, who, who's, who are we going to focus on first? And we agreed, the patients. We're going to start with an episode on the patients. And so we're going to touch on um, the, the elements of the book, but from the patient perspective, and um, part of this is a conversation about culture. And I, I want to start with your why you became a physician, because I know this influences your perspective on culture and, and your parent experience and, and how all this comes together. So, so where does this passion come from, Dr. Pearl? So as a naive 17-year-old, I headed off to college and I wanted to be a university professor. I wanted to teach philosophy. And my hero, who ultimately became the chairman at Reed College, he was brilliant didn't get tenure because of his political views. And I decided I wanted to go into something that would have no politics. <laughs> that would be medicine. Because medicine. we're medicine talking no about politics. life and death, Patrick. Yeah. How could there be, how could there be politics? Oh, no, so I went I to Yale Medical School, and then I went on to Stanford to become a heart surgeon. And guess what I found? the best physicians didn't always get the referrals. There was politics, who you knew, <laughs> yeah. the club you belonged to, and I almost dropped out of medicine. Yeah, wow, wow. And then I had the chance to go to Mexico on a volunteer trip and fix children with cleft lip and cleft palate. And I fell in love with that opportunity, the mission and the purpose, and that's how I, became what I do today, which is a reconstructive plastic surgeon. Mm. I love that. I love that story. And in your bio, you're, you serve as a clinical professor of plastic surgery at Stanford University School of Medicine and your faculty of Stanford Graduate School of Business, where you teach courses on strategy and leadership and lectures on informational tech and healthcare policy. And so you're taking the wisdom and the heart of your calling um, and the love for caring for patients that cleft lip surgeries, you, 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 it's, it's tangible how you can transform lives um, with uh, medicine and, and how you've, you've brought that into the work you're doing here. So let's talk about patients and, and culture. And so, you know, from that perspective of, of uh, which that just made me laugh, it's, it's uh, you know, didn't want to go into a career that involved politics, so you went medicine and here we are. Oh my God, uh, talk about politicized um, let's put, yeah, and let's put the politics aside. If we, if we put the heart of healthcare to this conversation and, and kick the politics to the curb, um, let's talk about the culture, um, of medicine and how it's impacting patients. Culture represents beliefs, the values, the norms that we as clinicians learn, 
in medical school, in residency, and we carry them with us throughout our entire career. It's not written down in any textbook, it's not giving any lecture, but it's through the stories, through the language that people use. Yeah. Yeah. When I try to explain to people about culture, I start in the 1850s with Ignaz Semmelweis. He's a physician in Austria, in Vienna, at the leading hospital. And he's appointed the head of the delivery service. And he's appalled. He's embarrassed. There's an 18% mortality rate. But what's really irksome is that the adjacent facility, one run by nurse midwives, has two-thirds lower mortality. Now, at the time, what patients died from was corporal fever, overwhelming infection of the uterus that spread throughout the body, and the cause was felt to be miasmas, foul-smelling particles that wafted up from the streets below. But he said, why should my patients be dying 18% when the nurse midwives are dying two-thirds lower? Now, as you know, Patrick, we often make our best discoveries through serendipity, and that's what happened. A colleague doing an autopsy on a woman who died from puerperal fever, nicks his finger, develops a local infection, and goes on to have a clinical course identical to these women who will die. So he hypothesizes, maybe there's something being carried from the autopsy room into the delivery room, either on the hands or the leather aprons these physicians wore in the days they had underlying three-piece suits that's being given to women in labor. So he decides that every doctor, before they go into the delivery area, will change that leather apron, dip their hands in chlorinated water, and lo and behold, mortality drops from 18% to 2%, 90% reduction. He writes it up in the leading journal. He writes letters to every delivery service. And guess what happens, Patrick? What? Nothing. <laughs> no one pays attention. Culture. Exactly yeah. right now. Indifference. Well, why do we? Well, it's not indifference. See, in the culture of medicine, the doctors were elevated, high esteem. The only way to think about them was healers. They were incapable of carrying disease. Uh, and those leather aprons, yeah. the more blood, the more pus, the more experience. The last thing they would be is associated with infection, mm -hmm. dies four years later alone in a mental institution where no one oh. will listen to them. Oh. And now we leap forward 150 years. And what do we find? Hospital-acquired infections are the number one cause of death for hospitals. 1.7 million people develop a hospital-acquired infection. 100,000 die. The bacterium is called Clostridium difficile. We know it gets carried on the hands of humans. Yep. Doesn't yep. go through the air. And if we have some researchers hiding in the corners, what do they see? One in three times today, doctors don't wash their hands. Oh, so true. To eliminate it drives me nuts. But I was CEO of a hospital in which I was trying to have a conversation with one of my physician colleagues saying, I'm a PhD clinical neuropsychologist, not a physician, but talking to a physician saying, I'm not going to say the person's names, so I don't want to give a gender, but the person saying, I do. So it's, 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 there are individuals who say that they are doing the right thing because they want to believe they're doing the right thing. People don't choose evil for evil's sake. They mistake it for happiness.
and when when they're not doing the right thing, people want to believe they are doing the right thing. So it's to your to your point, uh, they're still not doing it like they should. Well, they may, we we are not doing it like we should. No, this is just humans. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's what people have to understand. Doctors yeah. are just humans with the same right uh, frailties, yep. the same uh, weaknesses. Yeah. yeah. Uh, They'll have excuses. Well, I didn't really plan to touch the patient or I wore gloves, not recognizing you can put it on top Perfect. of the gloves. Yeah. Um, and yeah. when someone dies, the culture provides the excuse it had to be someone else. It wasn't the doctor. It had to be the nurse or the housekeeper. Housekeeper, that's a big one. Thank you. I, I used yeah. to oversee support environmental services and they were the first ones that were brought up as, well, they clearly didn't clean the room. And they're the ones who are wearing the right PPE. I've got story after story. I went undercover boss as a CEO to know what it was like to be an EVS worker. And you touch on culture. I'm, I, I'm so glad you're talking about this because we've got to look at the culture, who we are as healthcare professionals. It's impacting patients. This episode's on the patient. Um, and, and we're talking about quality, safety, uh, and this leads to disparities too. It, it's, it's impacting everything. So, but so in your book, um, you're talking about culture, you're talking about moving forward to the future, to, to now. Um, what do you see is, is where we're going in this culture right now and how can we improve patient care? Well, I think it's important to look at what's happened during COVID-19 to you. get a good sense of this culture. And I wanna make the point, culture's invisible to the people who are in it. I often think about smokers in North Carolina. They can sit in a small room and they don't notice all the smoke around them. If you or I walked in the room, we'd start coughing immediately. That's what the culture is like. Others can see it, but not the individuals in that culture. Mm -hmm. You know, what would physicians say about washing their hands? Well, first they'd say, as you said, they, they do it, but they might talk about, you know, expense. Why don't they do the right thing? Well, there's expense, there's bureaucratic regulation. No, it takes no time with an alcohol-based disinfectant. The culture lets them not see what is going on. So during COVID-19, yeah. the clinicians were heroes. What they did when they couldn't get protective gear, they put on garbage bags and salad lids. They went to the hospital and when they passed tubes through the mouth, down the throat, into the lung, they knew the patient would cough, spewing virus in their face. They did it anyway. And when they didn't have enough ventilators, they figured out how to put two patients on one machine, something that had never been done, not even thought about before. They were heroes. Culture has that ability to make people do remarkable things and the physician culture is no exception. Mm -hmm. At the same time, mm -hmm. all the things they didn't see that we can tell from the data that exists. Number one, 88% of people died from with, chronic, with two or more chronic diseases. Now think about that. You don't hear the big societies going on about what a poor job physicians are doing relative to chronic disease. You don't hear people, in fact, even talk about the value of prevention and avoiding complications for chronic disease. They talk about the cardiologist who goes in and unblocks a coronary artery, not the person who prevents it from happening. Yeah. We'll talk in the next show about primary care yeah. and how the physicians there are suffering 
to some extent from the systemic issues, sure. but equally sure. inside the cultural. Yeah. Let's look at some of the other pieces. If you ask physicians, why do black patients have three times the mortality of white patients during COVID-19? They'll give you a litany of answers. They work in jobs that they have to be there rather than being on Zoom from home. They take buses and subways. They live in multi-generational homes. And they're all true. What they don't talk about is the fact that early in the pandemic, when a black patient and a white patient came to the ED with uh, the same symptoms, the white patient got tested for COVID twice as often as the black patient. They don't talk about the fact they give 40% less pain medication. They don't talk about the fact that uh, women in labor have three times the higher chances of dying if they're a black patient, except when the attending physician is a True. black physician. True. When you put these pieces together, what's going on there? This is the nature of culture. We see people inside our group differently than we see people outside our group. We think they are more worthy. We have greater empathy, sympathy. It's not that doctors want to harm anyone. This is not negative. This is just what culture does. But if you want to change that, you need to address the cultural issues. And that's why I wrote Uncaring, how the culture of medicine kills doctors and patients. Incredible. And when a colleague, whether you're a physician, healthcare professional, hearing the data you just said, knowing, knowing the data about disparity in pain management for women in labor and long bone breaks, all the disparities you're touching on, Dr. Pearl, there are colleagues of ours who will say, in the back of their head, they'll think to themselves, well, you're calling me racist. There are people, I'm a neuropsychologist. I know the, the process for some of our colleagues is that instead of hearing the message, basically, if you practice evidence-based evidence -based medicine, the disparities go down. What's heard in the ego is, well, you're calling me racist. Somehow I'm giving different treatment. And, and it's like the Monty Python response. No, I'm not. So what do you say if there were a colleague sitting here with us now and it, whether they said it or implied it and they said, well, you're basically saying I'm racist in my care, how do you get around that in a dinner conversation with a colleague sitting next to us, having a glass of wine, talking about this data? How do you get around when, when someone gets defensive and says, well, you're calling me racist? As a neuropsychologist, I'm sure you're very familiar with the literature on what's called implicit bias. Yes. You take someone and you show them various images and they've got to match a particular word, be a positive word like intellectual or a negative word uh, against an image with the same word on it. And what you see is that white physicians will be much slower to put the positive label with the picture of a black patient or a black indiv individual with that same word on his or her picture versus um, a, a white uh, person with the exact same photos and everything else. Yeah. That's how our brains work. Yeah. That's the impact that culture has. Yes. Now, that's not racist. That's just simply the facts of how our brain work. What's racist is if you don't pay attention to it. Now, there are, I'm not saying there's no one out there who intentionally discriminates or is racist, but almost all these people we're discussing right now are not aware 
And so if you want to be what's often called anti-racist, what you have to do is understand the data that's there, recognize that it didn't start with something you decided to do, but now you have the opportunity to do things about it. When you order pain medication and the patient is black, uh, black patient, you ask yourself, is it possible I'm ordering the wrong medication? You may not be, but if you stop yourself and ask when you're seeing a patient in the emergency department and there's a shortage of supplies, in this case, COVID testing, you have to just ask yourself, if this were my friend, if this was someone who looked a lot more like me, would I do it differently? If you're on rounds in a maternity area, are you checking all of the patients and recognizing where the bias is likely to be? You know, I often refer to it like golf. If you know you have what's called a hook and you hit the ball right-handed to the left all the time, you might be smart to consider aiming occasionally to the right, especially when there's water hazard to your left. The same thing exists within racism. Sure. What's interesting is there was an article on artificial intelligence published about a year ago, where the headline was, AI is racist. Now what happened is United Health through its subsidiary Optum decided they want to invest some dollars in the patients who were sickest. So they used an AI application to figure out who those patients were. The problem was that as a insurer, they had claims data. What they didn't have was actual care delivery. So they made the assumption that the more money that's spent on you, the sicker you are. Now, in actuality, physicians provide $1,800 a year less care to black patients with the same insurance as white patients. So guess what happened? It picked a disproportionate number of white patients, not black patients. It only had 14% black patients. It should have been over 40%. The headlines blamed AI. It wasn't AI. It's the way we practice medicine the question well, they're doing is duplicating the results that we get doing it even better than we can do it but if we have an implicit bias we have to be aware of it and i think hopefully researchers will be aware about this in the future incredible incredible i i uh, i love everything you said and the, the the notion of ai being described as being racist when we're just asking the wrong questions and i love the analogy you gave about golf and if you've got a hook to the left you adjust your 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 golf club um and then you will hit more straight i think the parallel goes on to say if you're rounding in the maternity ward for example pick your patient population but when we take care of our patients if we're more mindful that there are these biases at least it'll help us adjust to be more in the center and that is the opposite of perceiving it as being dis being giving disproportionate extra effort which also gets people defensive thinks no i'm, I'm not going to give extra effort to someone else that's not what you're saying you're saying just adjust your club so you can hit straight how about you just get the right diagnosis for everybody not just for some so before i run out of time on this i want to ask you i know there's a chapter in your book nine questions patients should ask doctors could you tell us a little bit about that please this goes back to what you just said, Patrick, about the golf story, oh, which is that if you know that there's a water hazard, you want to do things to try to avoid it. If the culture of medicine, the physician culture, 
is one in which there's potential hazards, how do you minimize them? And again, I want to stress to the viewers, you know, I could not be more positive about medicine, about the profession. I encourage everyone to try to be part of it, to have the ability to provide care, to go home at the end of the night, knowing you saved a life. So yes. it's not negative in that way. It's just a recognition of that culture that exists that we need to get over. But until that happens, there are dangers out there. So I don't have time for all nine, but I'll give you three areas. One area is if as a patient, you have the kind of problem that's not very significant, but requires some kind of follow-up for the physician to see how you're doing over the possibility that maybe it was the wrong diagnosis or the possibility you might need more care. There's a set of questions you should ask. Can I contact you with email? Can I send you a text message? Can I, we just speak over the phone? Can we have a video visit? How can I get care without having to miss another day of work or school? And if the answer is, I don't do any of those things, at least you're prepared for what's likely to happen in the follow-up period. If you need a procedure done, the questions to ask is, how many of these did you do last year? And how many did the most experienced person do in this community last year? And what's the worst complication you ever had? And how many of these procedures would you require someone to have done for you to let them operate on you or do whatever the intervention is going to be? Great question. And then you can figure out whether that experience that this person has is worth it. It's not necessarily a right and wrong answer. And then finally, for people who have advanced disease, heart failure, lung failure, they've been in the hospital a couple of times, or cancer that's recurred multiple times, you want to know what are the other options that I have for care? You want to know when, as my problem progresses, will you be able to keep my pain adequately managed? And maybe the most important question to me is when I decide that I do not want any more intervention, will you still be with me or will you desert me? And that to me, I think is what people want to know as they face a terminal illness and end of life set of decisions. Those are the kinds of questions. They're all put into the context of the physician culture, but people who want to understand what to ask doctors respectfully, but for the information they need to participate in the decision-making process, we'll find that chapter particularly relevant and helpful. Absolutely powerful questions, Dr. Pearl. I, I recall a, a, a dear colleague of mine who I was interviewing for another episode, and she's currently battling ovarian cancer, a silent killer, and she was with a urologist who um, uh, was not doing the testing and the assessment necessary to get to the bottom of it to help. And when she shared there was some abdominal pain, uh, some GI symptoms, he turned to her and said, well, I, I guess I'm off the hook. And it's the antithesis about what you described. Uh, this episode coming up was with Diane Powis. Um, when this episode comes out, we'll see which comes out first. But 
um, uh, in Diane's show, she speaks about the urologist saying, well, I guess I'm off the hook. Your question, the third question you touched on there, if, if, if there's no longer care required, will you abandon me? You're touching on, are you still caring for me? You're not asking, are you going to continue to treat me gratis and forever be my best friend? No, you're talking about really the question is, do you respect me enough to keep a, a relationship? If I need care, if I just need you to care, um, is there a connection there, right? Is that where you're In going? In culture of medicine, as physicians, death is not something we're used to, but something we don't really like. We yeah. see it as our yeah. own oh, failure. Yeah. Oh, sure. We feel powerless. Um, we worry that how people are gonna view us as a failure. Of course, that's not the reality. No. That is the culture. Yeah. 100% so of us die. I can't necessarily cure you. In fact, I probably can't, but I'll be there for you and I'll make sure you're comfortable and I'll make sure you have the information you need and I'll help you find the resources. And again, people will point to the systemic issues. Well, that kind of conversation is not reimbursed and that conversation is not adequately funded, but it's why we chose medicine in the first place. Yeah. When we get to the episode around physicians, yeah, let's I do think it. not doing that creates the loss of mission and purpose and harms doctors as much as it harms patients. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And your book is titled Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine is Killing Doctors and Patients. And for listeners, viewers, where can people get a copy of that, Dr. Pearl? The easiest thing to do is to go to my website, robertperlmd.com, because there they'll have a choice of nine different providers, including Amazon and Porchlight and Barnes and Noble. They can pick who they want to have the purchase go through. Uh, and they also can get, if they pre-order, all the freebies that are available. And they can check out other pieces of information. Uh, I'll be writing an article uh, next week about the impact that the COVID-19 pandemic has had on physicians, particularly critical care physicians and infectious disease individuals, because I think they're gonna have post-traumatic stress disorder and it's going to be a crisis in medicine if we don't act now and provide the mental health and psychological support that they need and deserve. There is that crisis as a practicing psychologist, I'm caring for health care professionals struggling without burnout. And um, as an executive coach, I'm supporting um, executives struggling with that. Dr. Pearl, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, that, that crisis is occurring um, as we speak. And I'm just so grateful that you've, you've, you've worked on this book. It's the culmination of the love and passion and care that you bring to, to medicine uh, and our culture. So I want to thank you for being on this show on the Swift Healthcare Podcast. And I want to encourage folks to uh, tune in for our next episode, which, which will be touching on uncaring how the culture of medicine is killing doctors and patients. Um, as we discuss in the next episode, we'll be focusing on our, our providers, our, our doctors and, and the providers in healthcare. So Dr. Pearl, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Patrick. I look forward to the next episode next week. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe, rate, or leave a review about the show on your favorite platform and learn how to support the podcast as a patron at swifthealthcare.com, where you can also find the show notes and all of our episodes.
Thanks for joining us.